Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following is from a special event at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then I, shall, I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave your midst a meek. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments, he has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks and praise. We thank you for being a good and gracious God, for being uh, faithful to your people to grow and build your church. We thank you for the words that you have spoken through Zephaniah, and we pray that you would speak through him to us today. Uh, Father, be with us now. Bless our time together. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Zephaniah is one of the 12 minor prophets, and um, those minor prophets, of course, are 12 uh, shorter prophetic books that come towards the very end of your Old Testament. Uh, Zephaniah may be a minor prophet, but he has a major message. How's that for a little, you know, one of those little preacher sayings, right? See, you're you're going you're gonna to remember that, right? Minor prophet, major message. Yeah, it's a small book, but it's got a big message for us. Uh, it's a small book, but it makes some really big promises. That's what we really want to see here today. Uh, Zephaniah shows us what God is up to in history. So if you want to understand what God is doing in the world, Zephaniah is going to clue us into that. God's purposes for our planet. Now, to this point in the book, Zephaniah has mainly been talking about judgment. There have been a few threads of hope already woven into his prophecy, but largely it is a prophecy of judgment up to this point. He has shown us, if we looked at last night, uh, why the nations all around and even his own nation of Judah all deserve God's judgment. And that judgment is coming. Each people group, including God's own covenant people uh, who, who, uh, who belong to him, who have been set aside, every people group is going to have its own day of the Lord when the Lord's judgment comes upon them, when God comes to, to inspect them, when God comes to bring judgment against them. And these are historical judgments. Now, Zephaniah sometimes gets ignored or dismissed because people start reading Zephaniah and it seems so foreign to their own understanding of what the Christian faith is. People start reading Zephaniah and they think, oh, this is a political book, mainly about how nations of the ancient world rebelled against God. It's about nations, in many cases, that don't even exist anymore. 
And so how are we supposed to make any use of this? What, what good can this book do for us when uh, so much of it seems to be political or so much of it seems to be historical and dealing with nations that don't even exist? But actually, Zephaniah's message, as I hope you saw last night, Zephaniah's message is very relevant. The reality is, just as nations in Zephaniah's day deserve, deserve judgment, so nations in our day deserve judgment as well. Uh, Zephaniah talked about Assyria, Philistia, Cush, nations like that that deserve judgment. Today we could talk about America, Russia, China, whoever. But the issues are the same. And not only that, but just as Zephaniah said that in his day the people of God deserve judgment, we could say the same in our day. Uh, We could say the church in our day has failed. The church in our day is ripe for judgment as well. So there are all kinds of analogies we can make as we move from Zephaniah's day to ours. And while Zephaniah is indeed a highly political book, Zephaniah actually shows us that the political and the spiritual are inseparable. And this is an important point. I know you already know this, but I want to walk it through you, walk you through it. Politics, of course, is always downstream from culture, which is downstream from religion. But if the source of people's religion is corrupted, that is going to manifest itself in their politics. Politics is just the fruit that grows out of that spiritual or religious root. So we could say that while Zephaniah's diagnostic is highly political, when he diagnoses what's wrong with these nations or the way they're sinning, it's largely political sins or social sins, sins that are manifesting themselves culturally. All of that traces back to a spiritual source. And this is what Zephaniah shows us. These kinds of political problems do not have political solutions. So important to understand. These kind of political problems do not have political solutions. They only have spiritual solutions. Every culture is religious. Uh, A people's politics always ends up reflecting their deepest religious beliefs. Every culture has a God. There is no neutrality. You know that. But again, let's think this through for just a minute. Uh, How can we show, how how might we demonstrate that every culture is intrinsically religious? Well, uh, one thing we could say is every culture has certain holidays, or holy days, actually, is what that that means. Uh, You can look at what a culture celebrates, and that will tell you about the God of that Culture. So a culture might celebrate Christmas and Easter, and that would tell you something about that culture. Or it might celebrate Pride Month, that would tell you something about that culture. But whatever culture celebrates is going to show you what that culture holds dear. Uh, here's another way of, of, of uh, thinking through how every culture is intrinsically religious. Every culture has its own blasphemy laws. Every culture seeks to protect its God. Every culture has certain rules about who you can and cannot criticize. And once you find out who you cannot criticize, then you know, okay, I have put my finger on the God of this culture. When you know this is who I cannot criticize. Societies protect their gods. In some societies, that's the triune lord of scripture. The triune lord of scripture is protected. You cannot blaspheme him. In other societies, uh, you cannot criticize Allah. In still other societies, you cannot criticize the LGBTQ community. Uh, We might call these uh, laws in our day hate speech laws or hate crimes, something of that nature. But they're blasphemy laws. That's what they are. Uh, And once you find who you cannot blaspheme, now you know this is the god of that culture. Every culture offers sacrifices to its gods. Uh, Those sacrifices may come in the form of hymns of praise to Jesus. Think about the book of Hebrews that says, when we confess our faith, it is a sacrifice of praise to the living God. That's a, a form of sacrifice to sing a hymn 
to Jesus. Uh, if a culture makes sex its God, then children must be sacrificed uh, in order to preserve that God, to serve that God. So uh, that can happen through abortion, or, you know, literally, or that can happen metaphorically uh, through children being neglected and, and ignored and marginalized in various ways. But every society is built upon some kind of sacrifice. There's some kind of sacrifice at the heart and foundation of every society. Further, every culture honors its heroes. Every culture has saints, if you will. Every culture identifies certain heroes and villains from history. And those heroes and villains, they might be Martin Luther, uh, they might be George Floyd. But every culture is going to have its heroes. And again, when you figure out who those celebrated figures are in the culture, that's going to reveal the religious heart of that culture, its core religious values. Uh, I could keep going with this, but I think you get the idea here. You get the point. Religion is inescapable. There is no neutrality. Every culture has a god or gods that rule over it, which means... Religion is inescapable, worship is inescapable, legislated morality is inescapable. It's only a question of whose morality, the morality of which God will be codified into law. That's the only question. Every public square has a religion at its heart. There's really no such thing as a naked or secular public square. Every every public square is in some way religious at its core. And that's really important for us to understand because Zephaniah only makes sense if you understand this. Of course, I'd say that's true of the Bible as a whole. Zephaniah shows us that there is hope here. And Zephaniah shows us there is hope for this world. You know, you look at the world around us today, it might look rather hopeless. It's easy to be very discouraged. But Zephaniah shows us that there is hope. There's hope for our lives, for our families, hope even for our nation. Indeed, there is hope for all nations. Zephaniah shows us a God who, yes, judges the nations. He will judge the nations that rebel against him. But Zephaniah shows us a God who is also committed to redeeming the nations. He is a God who loves this world, uh, who loves humanity, who loves his creation. So, yes, he's a God who will judge the world, but he does not give up on his world. He will not completely give his world over. You might say God loves the world and God has a wonderful plan for this world. Okay, Satan hates the world and Satan has a terrible plan for this world. God loves the world. God has a wonderful plan for this world and God's plan is going to win. Sometimes it might look like Satan's plan is winning, but God's plan will win. Uh, Zephaniah's words in this prophecy so far, you could say, have laid the world to waste. That's really what we saw last night. God's going to sweep everything away. There's going to be a flood of judgment. Uh, God's going to bring judgment against the nations. But now we're to the point in the book where the smoke and the rubble are clearing away, the darkness and the cries of agony uh, are fading away, and hope is emerging. Light is shining. Those cries of agony under judgment are turning to songs of joy. And that's really going to be how the book ends. So I want us to look at two things in this talk this morning. Uh, We want to look at the jealous love of God that drives all of this in verse 8. And then we want to look at the transforming love of God in verse 9. And, of course, the jealous love is the transforming love. It's God's jealousy that leads to the transformation. But the jealous love of God mentioned in verse 8 of chapter 3, the transforming love of God mentioned in verse 9 of chapter 3. So, again, Zephaniah has been delivering this detailed account of the coming judgment on Judah and the surrounding peoples. Uh, When we pick up here in verse 8, the Lord says, wait for me. 
So wait for me. When the Lord arrives, what will he do? Well, he will seize the prey. He will gather the nations. He will assemble the kingdoms. Why will he do this? So he can pour out his indignation and his anger on them. This is more of what we've already seen in the prophecy, sort of summing up the message of judgment. That doesn't sound like very good news so far. But the end of verse 8 marks a turning point. Zephaniah, or the Lord we could say, speaking through Zephaniah, says this, In the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. All the earth will be consumed in the fire of God's jealousy. Now, we might think this is one more way that Zephaniah is describing the coming judgment when God shakes down the nations. But actually, this is the real pivot. This is the real turning point. Because in the next verse, God goes on to say, At that time, I will change the people's speech to a pure speech. So in God's jealousy, consumes the earth, what happens? The earth is purified. The speech of the peoples is transformed. Now, we're going to get into verse 9 in just a minute, but notice this first. This is not God judging the nations any longer. This is God redeeming and converting and discipling the nations. Zephaniah says God's jealous love will consume the earth. God's jealousy is a fire, and when that fire is poured out on the earth, what happens? Uh, the Bible, you know, frequently speaks of God's jealousy. Our God is a jealous God. We're familiar with that, uh, that refrain in Scripture. Jealousy is a major theme, actually, in the book of Zephaniah. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 18, uh, the prophet says there the same thing. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. And here we start to see what that means. Zephaniah is going to unpack for us what that jealousy means. So think about this. When we talk about jealousy, what kind of context does that normally come up in? If we talk about jealousy in everyday conversation, what's the usual context? Most often, it's in a romantic context, right? Say a marital context, especially. When we talk about jealousy, we're usually talking about a relationship between a man and a woman in a marriage. And so you might have, say, the, 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 the jealous husband or the jealous wife. Uh, they're jealous for one another's affection and, a loyal, and, and loyalty. Uh, a husband is jealous for his wife. That means he wants her faithfulness. Uh, he wants her loyalty. He wants her affection. It means he loves her so much that he will not tolerate a rival. Okay, if you see another man uh, making a pass at your wife and you don't do anything, I think, you know, I don't know if you really love her very much. But if you see somebody t- trying to take your wife away from you, what happens? That, that jealous anger flares up inside of you, and you're going to go do something about it. That jealousy, that, that, uh, that righteous anger against someone who would steal away your beloved. When we talk about a jealous husband, that's what we mean. He loves his wife so much, he will not tolerate a rival or anything that would come between the two of them. Uh, a jealous spouse is vigilant in guarding their marriage covenant. That's what jealousy is. And so it is with God and his people. When we read about the jealousy of God in Scripture, this is really what it means, that God has this amazing love and affection for his people. He wants to be our God and our only God. He does not want any rival God coming between us. He loves his bride. He wants to protect his marital covenant with her at all costs. He will destroy whatever threatens his relationship with his people. And that's really what Zephaniah is talking about here. God's jealous love for his bride. That God does not want anything coming between him and his people. God is jealous for the faithfulness of his people. God is jealous for the covenant he has made with his people. This kind of jealousy is not 
petty. Uh, it is, in fact, the strongest possible expression of love. It is the opposite of indifference. Again, if you're indifferent to what happens, say, to your wife, you don't really care whether she's loyal to you or not, then obviously you don't really love her. You don't really care about her uh, if you're not jealous for her. This jealousy means you have a passionate love for your spouse, and you want to guard that relationship at all costs. God's jealous love for his people is his passionate love for his people. It is his desire for their radical faithfulness to match his own faithfulness. God's jealousy means he loves us with an infinite intensity. When we read about the jealousy of God in Scripture, that's what we're reading about, his intense, all-consuming love for his bride. And so what we find here, what Zephaniah is saying, is that the jealousy of God, the fire of God's jealousy, will consume all rivals. Any who would threaten his relationship with his people will be consumed in the fire of his jealousy. But the fiery, jealous love of God goes one step further. This jealous love not only consumes any rivals, this jealous love also consumes any impurities and imperfections in the bride so that the, love, so that, so that the bride can return love with love. God is determined to make us holy as he is holy. He is determined to make us loyal as he is loyal. God is determined to make us love him even as he loves us. And so his jealousy will transform and purify us to that end. God is determined to have a faithful bride. The consuming fire of his jealousy will consume all the dross and impurities of our lives like a refiner's fire. His jealous love means his bride, his church, will be sanctified, full of splendor, without any spot or wrinkle, just the the kind of thing that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5 where he describes Christ's relationship with the church. See, the fire of God's jealousy, really you could say here, has a double meaning. It consumes all rivals who would steal away his bride, and it also transforms the bride into this radiant, beautiful, and submissive bride. And that's really what the rest of this chapter is about, how the fiery, jealous love of God guarantees he will have a faithful bride. The jealous love does not just destroy rivals, it refines and purifies his own people. Our God is a consuming fire, and yes, sometimes the flames of God's love will burn us as he purifies us. Sometimes the jealous love of God is going to hurt the things that he puts you through in order to purify you. But when God does put you through trials, understand that is his jealous love making you into that radiant, spotless bride. That's what he's doing with his church this jealous, all-consuming love of God. It it might seem that he is marring and and disfiguring us more than uh, making us into a beautiful people, but actually when the transforming work is done, we will indeed be the beautiful bride he desires that he can present to himself at the last day. So God's jealous love is possessive, it is protective, uh, and it's really a wonderful thing to be loved in this way, to be embraced by this love, to be surrounded by this kind of love. It brings us security. It brings us safety. God's jealousy is our security. It's precisely because God is jealous that your salvation is secure. Because God is jealous in this way. And we need to know God burns with a love for us. God burns with a love for his people. And he will go to any cost to make us his own and to keep us his own treasured possession. This is the strongest love imaginable. Think about the best marriage you've ever seen or your own marriage. Uh, The love between that husband and wife is just the faintest shadow 
of the love that God has for his people. That's all, that's all good news. That's all good to hear, but it gets even better because verse 9 goes on to show exactly what it means for this jealous love to come in this, with, with this transforming power. In verse 9, you could say the good news becomes great news. This jealous love is not just for one nation or some small group of people, some tiny remnant. It is ultimately for all peoples, all nations, all tongues, all tribes. What Zephaniah shows us next is that the whole world is headed for the flames of God's fiery, jealous love. That is the world's destiny. That's where the world is headed. God will have a global people, a people drawn from all the peoples of the earth, every tongue, tribe, nation. The jealous love of God will accomplish it. God will make one people out of the many. He will make one new nation out of the many nations, one holy nation out of the many unholy nations. Zephaniah uh, tells us about this comprehensive judgment that God is going to bring, that's going to fall on all nations. We've seen that. But now Zephaniah is going to announce a salvation that flows through and out of that judgment. And just as the judgment spread out north, south, east, and west, so the salvation will flow out north, south, east, and west as well. Complete judgment is going to lead to complete salvation. That's what we sang last night. Smite us and save us all. That's what God is going to do. Smite the earth that he might save us all. That's Zephaniah's point. So verse 9 tells us how this works. What is God going to do? Well, he's going to change the speech of the people to a pure speech so that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Now, if you ask, okay, is there, is there a, a story where God changes the speech of the nations? Of course, there is. Lurking in the background here, fairly obviously, is the Tower of Babel story in Genesis chapter 11. And I'm sure you know that story well. Uh, think about the context there in Genesis 11. Uh, humanity had refused to spread out and fill the earth. God had said to multiply, to uh, fill the earth, and the people refused to go out and fill the the earth. They're clumped together, gathered together in one place, and they all have the same language, and they have the same speech. Uh, and actually, I, the, the, the Hebrew of, of Genesis 11, when it speaks of them having the same language and the same speech, that's not redundant. It means they did speak the same language, but it also means, the other word there uh, describes a religious confession. It says they had the same religious Confession. So really, it's not just that they share the same language. They share the same culture, the same religion, uh, the same gods. They're united together in a false religion. They're united together in idolatry. They're united together in their rebellion against God. In those days, there's only one kind of paganism. There was only one false religion. There weren't these you know, many different denominations of uh, paganism. They're all united together into one, you could say, false religion. Church And so they came together to build a tower, a kind of temple, uh, a place of worship that would reach to the heavens. And the text of Genesis tells us they wanted to make a great name for themselves. They didn't want to make God's name great. They wanted to make their own name great. They wanted this tower to reach to the heavens. They're going to storm the throne room of heaven itself. They're going to become gods themselves. And so here they stay clumped together, congregated in one place, gather together, concentrating their power. 
That's Genesis chapter 11. The Tower of Babel story is a story of mankind united in idolatry, united in rebellion. It is man versus God, man making himself a rival to God, man exalting himself rather than exalting God, man making his own name great rather than making God's name great. And again, they're going to reach the heavens by their own strength and wisdom. And so what happens? Well, with, with a sense of wry humor, uh, with a, more than just a touch of irony, uh, the Genesis text tells us that God came down to get a good look at this tower. They're going to build a tower to the heavens, but God has to come down from heaven just to get a good look at it. Uh, it is mockery built right into the narrative of Genesis. They're being mocked. They want to build this tower to the heavens, and God says, well, I can't even see it from up here, so I'll come down and get a closer look so I can see exactly what's going on down there. And what does God do when he comes down? God judges them. God makes a judgment. The people are one with one confession. God says if, if they are one, nothing they seek to do will be withheld from them. So we see here there's power in unity, even for pagans. And so God says he will divide them. God says he will <laughs> confound their confessions. So they will not be able to understand one another's Language And because of that confusion, they will have to scatter out over the face of the earth. And, of course, that's actually what Babel means, is confusion. God confuses their languages so they can no longer cooperate, no longer work together, and they have to spread out. Many different nations come out of the judgment of Babel as mankind is divided. You could say now paganism is broken up into a bunch of different denominations. They're going to serve various, a wide variety of false gods. They'll have different languages and different confessions. Now, understand this. In the Tower of Babel incident, the judgment is not that there are now many nations. Because think about this. Had humanity spread out to fill the earth the way they were commanded initially, there would have been many nations anyway. It was always God's plan for there to be many nations, a kind of diversity within the unity of the human race. So that's not the judgment in itself, that there are many nations. Nations. God had commanded them to fill the earth. Had they obeyed that, there would have been many nations. Many nations in itself is a good thing. But here the division comes as a judgment because of their refusal to spread out and fill the earth. The question then is this. Does God intend for humanity to stay divided in this way forever? Does God intend to give the nations over to idolatry forever? Zephaniah 3.9 answers that question. I think Zephaniah 3.9 is one of the most important verses in the Bible because it links together the Tower of Babel from Genesis with what happens in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's one of those passages that ties the whole Bible together into one big story and helps us make sense out of all of it. <laughs> Zephaniah 3.9 is the answer to that question. It tells us that God in his sovereign grace will change the hearts of the people so that their speech, that is their religious confession, is made pure. And then they will call upon the name of the Lord in faith. And the result will be that the many nations will be united. The many nations will be gathered together, not in one place as they were at Babel, but they will be gathered together as one spiritually. It's telling us the nations here will serve God with one accord. Literally, it says they will serve God shoulder to shoulder. We'll talk about this more in the, in, the, in the next talk. But shoulder to shoulder, what could that describe? That could describe an army marching in lockstep, marching out to battle. 
It's also an architectural term that describes the construction of the tabernacle and temple where shoulders are brought together, put together to uh, form a building. The Tower of Babel was the counterfeit of that reality. It was the counterfeit of what God actually wants to build, the reality of what God wants to do in history. The question then is, when does this happen? When do the words of Zephaniah come to pass? When does Zephaniah 3.9 find fulfillment? Well, again, Zephaniah 3.9 is describing Pentecost. So this is thousands of years after Babel. This is 600 years after Zephaniah. It's 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, the day of Pentecost recorded in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out. And what happens? God begins to purify the people's speech. God begins to give the people's pure speech and make them one. Think about what happens in Acts chapter 2. You, you got these disciples gathered together. Uh, you got some in the upper room, and you got people who have gathered in Jerusalem for the feast. And, uh, and, and we actually know they came from 17 different ethnicities. 17 different ethnicities are represented there in Acts chapter 2. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out, the disciples begin to speak the gospel in foreign languages. There is a speech miracle that takes place. People from different ethnicities, so these 17 different ethnicities, begin to hear the gospel in their own language. Each one of these different languages is being purified. Now, sometimes you'll hear it said, Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. God takes that judgment at Babel, and he turns it into a blessing. So Pentecost reverses what happened at Babel. I don't think that's quite right. I don't think that's quite right. Uh, people will point to that and they'll say, well, it's the reversal because God confused the language of the people so they would be divided into different nations. Now God is uniting them together through the gift of tongues. Okay, that's true, but it's not quite right to say that Pentecost is reversing Babel. It would be more accurate, I think, to say that Pentecost sanctifies Babel. It takes what happened at Babel and it sanctifies it. It shows us what God intended all along if humanity had obeyed and had scattered out to fill the earth. What happens at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 would have been the result. Pentecost sanctifies Babel. You could even say it fulfills Babel. At Pentecost, there were many people groups, each speaking their own language, but now because of the gift of the Spirit, speaking the same gospel in each one of these languages. Now the gospel is being, being spoken in a multitude of languages. After Pentecost, nations do not cease to exist. It's not as if we all go back to speaking one language. That would be the reversal of Babel, right? Go back to one language. Okay, that's not what happens. Babel's not undone in that way. We don't revert back to being one ethnic group. Nations don't cease to exist. Aspects of the post-Babelic world continue to persist after Pentecost. After Pentecost, we still have many languages and many cultures, but now each one of them is being sanctified. All these different languages, all these different cultures, all these different people groups are now being called into God's kingdom. And when they come into God's kingdom, they don't leave their old language behind. Rather, their language gets purified. That's what Zephaniah 3 Tells us. So you have people from every nation calling upon the name of the Lord. People from every nation being united and being made one. They're being formed into one holy nation that is the church, the new Israel of God. Nations still exist, but ultimately they will become Christian nations united with one another in a common faith. There are still many nations, but there's one church they'll all belong to. That's Zephaniah's promise. The perverse dream of Babel finds its true and holy fulfillment in the church. 
This is what Zephaniah is showing us. This is what history is all about. This is God's global plan of salvation, God's plan for the nations. Many nations being gathered together into one church. Not leaving their old culture and their old language behind, but rather having that language and having that culture transformed, sanctified, purified by the jealous love of God. So each culture now worships God in a faithful way, but in a way that's also unique. What is FNI showing us here? God will have a global people. Many nations united by a common confession. What does this mean? This means God will save the world. God will make the nations his own. This is what Christ came to do. This is what the Spirit was poured out for. This is why Christ and the Spirit have come. Christ came for the nations. Christ was sent into the world to save the world. Christ came because God is a jealous God, and in his jealous love, he reclaims and transforms the nations. The people scattered at Babel are now being gathered into the church to form one humanity, ethnically diverse and spiritually united. One new people in Christ being made out of the many nations of Babel. So confusion has given way to confession. The confession that Jesus is Lord. The confession that Jesus is Lord and Savior. This is the glory of the Christian gospel. Everybody's looking for some way to unite disparate people groups in the world today. There's so much talk about this. And and, and hear certain slogans like, diversity is our strength, which has there ever been a more hollow slogan than that, right? Okay, what does that even mean, okay? Um, Stay home, stay safe. Or that kind of thing, yes. Okay? We need to be very clear about this in the cacophony that our culture has become. The Christian faith is the one and only universal religion that can unite humanity. It is the only religion capable of covering the globe. The church is the true united nations. The church is the true globalism. Only the gospel can unite and transform the world. Only the gospel can sanctify the nations and join the nations together. Only the gospel. This is the good news, that Christ planted his kingdom in the world and his kingdom is spreading to the nations. And the nations do not need to give up what makes each of them unique. Rather, each nation's uniqueness will be sanctified by God's grace and by God's jealous love. So God's original program to fill the earth to fill the earth with worshipers, with image bearers who serve him, that original plan will come to fulfillment. It will come to fulfillment through his church as the nations are discipled. This is the Christian vision for the world, and nothing less. Nothing less than this will do. See, Zephaniah's prophecy is really a promise, and it should fill us with hope at all times. Even when we look at the world around us today and we think, man, this is a, you know, we're in a pretty deep hole here. This is a pretty big mess we're in. Uh, And it doesn't seem like there's uh, a good way out. No matter how bad things might seem to get, God's promise holds true. In the short run, if you want to be a pessimist, that's fine. In, In the short run, if you see reasons for pessimism, that's fine. But in the long run, we must all be optimists about the kingdom of God. There is no long term pessimism about God's kingdom allowed. Every image or picture we have of the kingdom of God in Scripture is of something that grows and fills and conquers. God's global purposes will prevail. And what that means is that every nation in the world, with its language, its culture, 
What makes it unique as a nation? Every nation in the world is destined to be a Christian nation, a discipled nation. So imagine what a Christianized China might look like. A China full of Christians. Imagine what a Christianized Russia might look like. If you've got a really wild imagination, you might even be able to imagine what a Christianized America looks like. Okay, maybe. Okay, that one's hard. But I bet you might be able to do it if you really try. Okay. Imagine a Christianized world. That is where we are headed. That is God's purpose. It's so important for us to understand this. And one thing, you know, um, I'm a pastor here. Many of you are pastors. And, and if not, you're, you're certainly a leader in the church as an elder in some other capacity. One thing that I think we kind of get in the series, see, but we need to continue to work at is under, see, there's such a, there's a, such a tendency, there's so much pressure put upon us by the culture in which we live to filter everything through an individualistic lens. And so the gospel becomes all about what Jesus has done for me. It's all about me and my personal salvation. And we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus. That's just the, that's the, um, that's how evangelical and, and even many reformed Christians in America talk. That's our kind of our native language. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying we obviously do have a personal relationship with Jesus. We all need to trust in Jesus and seek to obey him in our own personal lives. But one thing we've got to do is, is, in our own understanding and in the understanding of our people, grab hold of this bigger picture. God's playing on a bigger field, not just in your own heart, but the nations. The, 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 the stage for God is global. Uh, the stage for God is the nations. Uh, we, need to, we need to be able to uh, articulate this for our people in a way that can help them to start to think in bigger categories than just me and my personal salvation. Think about this in Scripture, the the range that we find in Scripture. In Scripture, you have some letters, inspired writings in the Scripture that are are addressed to particular individuals. That's pretty amazing, right? I mean, if you're Timothy, (laughs) you know, think about the fact that God wrote you a letter through the Apostle Paul just for you with your name on it. That's pretty remarkable, right? Timothy got that. Titus got that. Uh, there are other cases where uh, whole churches or whole congregations are addressed, like, you know, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, or collections of churches are addressed. <coughs> then there are also books of Scripture that address whole nations. Zephaniah would be one of them. I, I, might, I would just surmise that Zephaniah uh, made several copies of this letter and sent it out to all the different nations he talks about here. How could he not? It's addressed to them. They need to hear it. So you've got scripture addressing individuals, you've got scripture addressing larger corporate groups like uh, churches, and of course even within those letters addressing subgroups like, say, families. Uh, and then you've also got letters of scripture or, or, or portions of scripture that are addressed to whole nations, or you could ultimately say the whole world. I think sometimes it's easy for us to think that everything in the Bible is just like First Timothy, and it's just written to me personally. And that's a wonderful way to think about the Bible. But we've got to learn to think about the Bible as having a bigger message and a bigger context as well. Uh, Here's another problem we sometimes run into. It's easy for people to think, okay, the Old Testament, like Zephaniah, Old Testament is corporate, external, national. The Old Testament deals with those kind of realities. That's the Old Covenant. 
corporate, external, national. But then when you come to the new covenant, it's all individual, internal, and spiritual. So you've got corporate, individual, external, internal, national, spiritual. And for a lot of people, that's how they read the shift from old covenant to new covenant. And if you do that, you're going to pretty much dismiss most of the Old Testament as irrelevant because it's corporate, it's external, it's national. And my relationship with God is individual, internal, and spiritual. Now, it should not be that hard to debunk this way of reading the Bible. That way of viewing the shift from Old Covenant to New Covenant simply does not hold up under scrutiny. Have any of you read, the, I'll just say it's a classic work, The Failure of American Baptist Culture? 1982 or so, yeah, okay, yeah. This is, it's, got, it's a really interesting collection of essays, uh, and it's kind of obscure, you know, kind of a cult classic, I guess, in a way. Uh, but there, there's an article in there by Richard Flynn, who I don't know if you ever read anything before that or since then. Uh, I don't know anything about him other than what he wrote in this uh, one article that's in that book. But he's got an article in that book that deals with this issue really, really well. And he says, actually, so he says, let's put this hypothesis to the test. Is it true that the old covenant is all national, external, and corporate? And that the new covenant is all internal, spiritual, and, and per, or individual? And, uh, and he shows it's just not the case. The reality is the old covenant, the old covenant scriptures constantly address individual matters, internal matters, and spiritual matters. All you have to do is look at the Psalms. Which, of course, the Psalms, we know, are full of the political and the external and the national as well. Think of Psalm 2. But then think of a Psalm like Psalm 19 or Psalm 139, where David is personally asking God to search his heart. There's nothing more internal and spiritual and individual than that. (laughs) And that's right there in the Old Covenant scriptures. Or uh, think about uh, the call to Israel to not just have circumcised bodies, but to have circumcised hearts. Clearly, God was concerned with the individual and the personal and and, and the internal and the spiritual, even under the Old Covenant. You can't just say the whole Old Covenant is corporate, external, and national, and that's it. But then when you come to the New Covenant, well, yes, you certainly continue to find individual, internal, and spiritual matters being addressed. You know what you also find? You find corporate, external, and national issues also being addressed. Those realities are very much in view in the New Covenant. So think about one of the very most famous New Testament passages, you know, one of the most famous of them all, the Great Commission. It's given in terms of nations, which connects it with all this Old Covenant stuff about God's purposes for the nations and how God addresses the nations. If you dismiss nations from your view and think God's only concerned with individuals, You can't make sense out of the Great Commission. The church's mission is structured in terms of corporate realities, and even you could say external realities, because it's it's taking the gospel to the nations, everything Jesus commanded, taking that to the nations, and then it's baptizing the nations. And what is baptism? It's an external rite, an external ritual. Obviously, internal uh, and, and personal matters are included in the Great Commission. You can't disciple a nation without discipling individuals. You can't transform a nation without transforming individual hearts. But the goal is not just to have a bunch of discipled individuals. It's to have discipled <coughs> nations. That is the goal of the New Covenant. That is the mission of the church. And discipling a nation has to do with the totality of that nation's life, with every aspect of its, its, its existence. 
So the new covenant deals with these corporate and national, and you could say external realities. It deals with institutions, with societies, with cultures. Again, the totality of life. The whole Bible is intensely corporate and intensely individual. And there's no tension between the one and the many in Scripture. There's no tension between the internal and the external in Scripture. Scripture simply does not traffic in the dichotomies or dualisms that we tend to create in the modern world where we tend to pit these things against one another, and it's an either-or. In Scripture, it's always a both end. Always. We're not just concerned with the externals. We're also concerned with the internals. We're not just concerned, say, with the corporate, but also the individual. But these things always go together. And what this means is that we should be just as at home in the concept of a Christian nation as we are with the concept of a Christian individual. We freely talk about Christian individuals. We know an individual can be a Christian. But can a family be Christian? Can a nation be Christian? If we get uneasy with those kinds of concepts, that shows we haven't fully bought into this reality. We're still functioning with these dichotomies and imposing them on Scripture. We ought to be just as at home with the concept of a Christian nation as we are a Christian individual. We need to understand the new covenant is as big and as broad as creation itself. And that is why you can't just pick up Zephaniah and say, well, this deals with a bunch of nations that don't exist anymore, and it deals mainly with their politics, which I don't really care about because I'm just focused on my inner life. You cannot dismiss Zephaniah. Zephaniah is still relevant because God is concerned with these things, and the mission that Christ has assigned to us as the church means we must deal with these things. Zephaniah matters because of what Ephesians 1.10 says. Ephesians 1.10 tells us that God is gathering together into one all things in Christ Jesus. That's why Zephaniah matters. Zephaniah matters because of what Paul says in Colossians 1.20, that God is reconciling all things to himself through the cross. That's why Zephaniah matters. Because Zephaniah promised those things And now Paul is showing us how in Christ they come to fulfillment. All right, let me end there. Uh, We'll come back in just a bit, I guess, for the second talk. So let me me stop there. You may close this in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time together, and uh, we thank you for your word and pray that uh, that you would speak to us through your word and that you would help us to grasp not just your purposes for our own individual lives, but your global purposes, your purposes for the nations. You are a God who, yes, saves individuals, but you also save families. You save cultures. Uh, You save nations. You ultimately save the whole cosmos. But the blood of Christ covers all of these things, and we're to live all of life under the reign of the Lord Jesus. Father, help us to understand these things and to put these things into practice and to proclaim these things. Uh, Father, we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.